Um, my project was called Community Building and User Engagement, Developing the Potential of LORO. So I need to start by explaining to you what LORO is. And LORO is a, an open repository of teaching resources that we developed with some GISC funding at the Department of Languages at the Open University. And I've put there some information so that you get an idea of what the Department of Languages is. Size-wise, we've got 50 people who write the courses and coordinate the courses, 300 language teachers, and we, te we teach 10,000 st students. And those are the languages that we teach. LORO initially was created to make the delivery of teaching materials to our own teachers easier. Okay? So when you go to the front page of LORO, you get a section that says, find resources for open university modules. So if you're a teacher teaching beginner Spanish, you click there, go straight to beginner Spanish, and you find all your material. The idea behind LORA was to make all teaching materials available to all users. The systems we had before meant that people could only access the teaching materials for the course that they taught through the VLE. So um, we were trying to find a way where all teachers could see everything, all the materials for all the levels, all the languages. Uh, at the same time, we wanted to make the materials available to the wider languages community. So why not make it completely open so that everybody else outside the university can also access this material? And another part of it was enabling users to share their own materials. So the teachers were creating their own material, and there wasn't much uh, of an efficient way of sharing that. Um, this repository is firmly aimed at teaching practitioners. It doesn't mean that students cannot use the material there, but the material is by teachers for teachers. And the idea here was to make the access to resources easier, to promote dialogue, to enable knowledge sharing and creation, and ultimately then to enhance the quality of teaching and learning. So, for example... Um, teachers would find a resource that the university had created and shared, and it's got the, the university, open university branding at the top, so this is a, a university-created resource. Teachers could look at that and then maybe improve it and make another version of it which is better or which is more contextualized to the setting where they teach or more specific to the needs of their students. Um, it's not that sharing wasn't happening before. It was already happening before, just not very efficiently because we had pockets of sharing. We had sharing amongst colleagues who would email things to each other, sharing through a teacher forum, but then the forum was closed at the end of the year and then those materials weren't taken anywhere else. So, for example, here is an example of um, Italian teachers sharing, trying to come, come together, come, uh, work together on a list of expressions for um, group discussion. So they do that through the forum, the teacher forum in the course that they teach. And at the end of the year, the course is finished, we move to a, the next course. If there's a new teacher joining the institution, that teacher hasn't got access to this material because it's in last year's forum. So what we wanted to do was just create a system um, that would enable that easier sharing. Um, and many of you have already seen this, you know, the sharing that was going on and is still going on, a lot of the sharing that is still going on and the reuse that's still going on is that sort of bottom part of the iceberg, you know, the sharing that's not easy to trace because it's happening through email, it's happening through personal requests or because I'm mentoring somebody and I say, oh, here's my stuff, you know, you can start with that. Um, so with Laura, what we were trying to do was bring some more of that to the surface so that there is that um, wider knowledge sharing. So in my um, 
project, um, what I was trying to do was, okay, we built it, you know, build it and then they will come sort of thing, yeah? We build the repository, and then how do we now encourage people to use it? Um, one of the things that um, was quite successful was the fact that we timed the introduction of the repository to a point where all the materials had to be reissued because we changed the teaching platform. So everybody had to go to Laura to get their new material. So that means that about three quarters of our teachers are using Loro to access material uh, for the course that they teach, and about a third of them are accessing Loro to look at other stuff for other, other courses that is not the course that they teach. So in my project, I was thinking, okay, how do we engage users? How do we um, get people to engage with creating materials, to share, sharing materials, reusing materials? Um, so I, what I did was a number of activities such as trainings and talks and newsletters and talking to people who are responsible for staff development. Um, but obviously I haven't got time to explain the whole thing here. So I've just tried to focus on a couple of conclusions, a couple of things that um, were my conclusions of this user engagement um, activity. And the first one is that it's better to play with those who want to play with you, basically. Um, you know, a lot of people just don't want to play. A lot of people are not interested. So, you know, why force it? Um, and this is, you know, it sounds very simplistic like this, but, you know, there's some research that backs it. In online communities, you normally have a very small minority that contribute most of the, of the content. And the great majority, the vast majority, are consumers of that content. So... You know, if we just get 10% of the people, of the Loro users, to actually repost their own material, we're doing okay. okay? Um, the, other, the other big conclusion was that people move at different speeds. You know, you can't force people to run before they can walk. Um, they have different priorities. They have different needs. Engaging with open resources and open practices is not just about learning about copyright being told about copyright. It's not just about having a little training session on how to upload to a, a repository. It means it goes deeper. It goes to your whole identity as a teacher, how you relate to um, your teaching materials, what you create, how you relate to your colleagues, and how you, you relate to your students as well. So this kind of transformation that we're asking people to make in opening up their practice for public scrutiny um, it's, it's different for every individual. You can't, you can't rush it. Um, and I thought as well that, you know, you have to grab people at the point of the things they're interested in. So we moved from talking about Laurel to not talking about Laurel. Okay? So we thought, okay, let's, let's look at what people want to do. Let's look at projects that people might be interested in. And then let's have a subtext of OER and open practices in those projects. So two projects that I've been involved in this year. One was about collaborative writing and peer review. Um, and that was a dozen teachers who came together in a sort of semi-structured program. And they decided what they wanted to work on. So some of them decided they would look at Jing, which is a technology for capturing, um, well, like Amtasia kind of technology. So some of them oh, well, we'll look at how we can create some resources with Jing. Others said, we want to look at 
beginner's languages resources, you know, something that's there for French, and we will create a German version of it. So everybody chose what they wanted to work on. But underneath this was the fact that they were learning about how to create those as OER and share them as OER. Um, the other project is the Performing Languages project. And again, this is like, what's that got to do with OER? You know, this is to do with drama and language teaching and uh, looking at using drama techniques, adapting them to the, to the language classroom. But again, those who take part in the mobilities, those who travel to the different countries and work with the um, drama um, schools, they then create resources which they share openly through Loro. So we get that kind of training and that kind of um, um, conversations around sharing stuff as part of the project. So I think the main recommendation from my project would be to embed open practices and open resources in other activities and to make it like a standard part of teacher education and uh, professional development activities for teachers. And if you want to find out more about Loro, I've left you a leaflet on top of your desk. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you, Anna. Hi. Um, is that going to... Hi, my name is Alana Fitzgerald. Um, my project is called Toy Toy, and Toy Toy is that grass um, that you can see just there on the left-hand side of the picture. Um, and it stands for Technology for Open Education, Open e English, and then toying with open e-resources. So just going along with what Anna was saying about finding those people that you can play with who are interested in just toying with different technologies for, um, in my case, um, English language teaching. So that is the broad um, field that I come from, ELT. But because this is a HEFKE-funded project, I decided to focus it in on um, English for academic purposes, so English taught in the higher education context. And um, there are some issues with ELT, but also with EAP. So because we are an industry, English language teaching is an industry, we're very dominated by publishers especially um, OUP, CUP publications, primarily textbooks um, that have a very general approach to teaching English. And that might be okay if you're teaching the language as an oral, um, oral skill, so focus on listening and speaking. But when you go into the university context and you're teaching primarily writing and reading skills, you'll find suddenly that all of these resources for academic writing that have been put up by publishers start to fall down because it's very loosely marketed as to what academic writing is. And when you open them up, a lot of them are just preparation books for taking the TOEFL test, the test of English as a foreign language, or the International English Language Testing System, uh, also known as IELTS. So really, at... At best, you're going to come through one of those textbooks, possibly knowing how to put together a five-paragraph essay. Um, but who we're really dealing with in higher education, a lot of these international students, also home students, are students who really need help with writing long pieces of writing. So we're talking dissertations, we're talking you know, research reports. Um, we need to help them with um, embedding and writing up empirical data and so on. Okay, so I looked at four open um, language projects, FLAX, Word and Phrase, 
Lex Tutor and Ant Comic. I'll just quickly show you two, which is flax and word and phrase. Um, so really, um, in many ways, my project has been looking at British resources, so these large corporate or collections of language. And so we went to the Oxford Text Archive and um, looked at the British National Corpus and also the British Academic Written English Corpus. And the idea is that a corpus is a collection of language that's kind of in some ways stuck in time. Um, so the British National Corpus was started in the late 70s, finished in the 1990s. So that language is great, but the idea of linking data and linking resources is to enhance these resources for language learning. So moving away from a research resource to a learning and teaching resource. So in FLAX, which is the Flexible Language Acquisition Project based at the Waikato, University of Waikato in New Zealand, um, they've taken this British Academic Written English corpus. And this is a corpus of student writing from the UK. It's all been assessed, um, graded A or B um, grades of assessment. And what we're trying to do is show students in the UK that are coming onto EAP programs, this is the type of writing assessment that you would be expected to do. And we're jazzing that up by linking it to things like Wikipedia, um, linking it back to the BNC, linking it to dictionaries, linking it to thesaurus um, resources. Um, so much more than a textbook could do because the textbook is bound by its physical um, entity of pages. And so you're going to get a lot more examples of real language and context by looking at these larger resources, but also linking them to more open resources and making them into OER. Thank you. Thank you very much. And moving on, uh, moving into health and life sciences now uh, with uh, Jackie Williamson-Richard Wendell. Thanks very much. Um, I think we've heard a lot today about OER and, and what OER is really about. And some of the issues we've heard about are sharing, um, unintended barriers or unforeseen barriers, and reuse. And I think our talk is, is a bit of an example of that in that we shared out our slides between us. One of our group, Viv, couldn't come because she had a, a breakdown in her car today. So then we had to, we, we'll attempt to reuse some of her slides and interpret <laughs> those slides for you. When we start to think about OER in health, um, maybe I could start by asking you to reflect on a, a health issue that perhaps you've been involved in in some way. And that could be a major thing, such as a stay in hospital or surgery. It might be something that's happened to a family member, a, a child, or perhaps an older relative who's required care. Or it might be a minor thing. It might be simply a flu jab or a public health issue in, in your area. Um, sports injury something like that. And then begin to think about the number of people involved in that particular health issue. People that you want to make sure have knowledge and skills and up-to-date expertise in that area. And I think you begin to see the amount of um, potential there is for reuse in this area. People you might have thought of were, were, were healthcare workers like doctors and nurses and midwives and physios and so on. Um, but also there are others. There's yourself, of course, because most people these days want to be informed about their health. Um, we, we live in this, this era of the so-called expert patient. 
And then there's your family and carers, perhaps charities and support groups. All these people that, that you really hope have some knowledge of the condition to some level or another. And as I say, that, that, that's really the, the environment that we were working in, and in some ways our starting premise for looking at this potential for reuse in this area of health, both in terms of formal learners, and I think figures suggest that one in ten students going into UK higher education um, is studying a subject allied to either health sciences or medicine. Um, but also, in a vocational sense, those people working out in practice who need to keep their knowledge up to date, and also informal learners like ourselves and family members and so on, who also want to know something about these issues. And we have undertaken between us three case studies, really, and all of these were case studies. We spent quite a bit of time looking at these and trying to decide what was the similarities between them. Really, they're all case studies where institutions have taken resources and tried to release those as OER, made them available as OER, for the wider community in the area of, of health or, or life sciences. Um, and you can see the three projects there. We're not really going to sort of go into lots of detail about the, the, the projects. Um, we might pick up on them as we go through. But really what we wanted to do is we sat down and we looked at our projects and tried to think what were the common issues that were coming through as we were looking at reuse in these areas. And there were a number of issues that seemed to sort of come out and we could triangulate from the projects. So um, there's a list there, and, and what Jackie and I are going to attempt to do for a few minutes is just go through some of these issues and, and pull out some of the findings in, in these particular areas. And although, obviously, they relate to health, I think some of them have, have wider consequences for um, reuse generally. So firstly, is there any reuse happening? And all three of the case studies found there was a, a fair degree of reuse that was, was visible in one way or another in these particular projects. This is um, some data collected from the, the case study that I was involved in in Nottingham where we've been actually releasing OER-type materials over a period of about 10 years and, and tracking the use of those resources partly by asking the community to just let us know how and when they're reusing the resources. And so over that period of time, we've generated a number of graphs like this. And they show that certainly reuse is happening. We, we estimate of the resources that we release in this area, probably about 65% of the use uh, is probably reuse now outside of Nottingham. But also we found that the reuse in all of our projects was coming not just from, from universities, but also from other individuals, be that charities or, or support groups or, or health trusts and so on. And these sort of figures can be, can be generated you know, uh, on, a, on a worldwide scale. So there is reuse occurring worldwide. And I think, Jackie, that's something Jackie might pick up on her project. There was a lot of evidence for worldwide reuse. We asked, one of the things I did in my, my case study was asked, went back to that community that had been writing to us really over a period of about 10 years and sort of asked them a few questions about their reuse. So firstly we asked, who, who was actually reusing these resources in health? And these are the sort of responses that, that, that we got. So, yes, there were lots of learners reusing, as we might expect, in higher education institutions and further education. A lot of people who identified themselves as educators. But there was also a fair degree of reuse amongst health practitioners, some people that identified themselves as patients, users and carers. So there is, an, there is, there is a certainly a sense from all the projects that these resources are escaping out of the universities and being reused. In, in, in wider context within health. One of the um, things that came up from our projects quite strongly was the 
the issue of, of quality control. And I know quality control can be quite a contentious issue in terms of, of, of OER. And who should, control the, who should control the quality? And what extent should quality be controlled at the point of release? You know, there's, a, there's a big point for debate there. But I think in, from our studies, certainly we found that quality, quality control and a degree of quality assurance was a big driver for reuse, as that, that graph sort of shows um, under sort of uh, the fact that the resources here were peer-reviewed, and that seemed to be a big, important factor. And this seems to be a, a recurring feature in health, certainly, and I think probably, you know, it, it's perhaps not surprising in the area of health that quality assurance is an important factor. I've put repurposing together with that, because we looked at repurposing, and the evidence from the project so far is that the level of repurposing of the resources was fairly low. Now, that might be partly the nature of the resources themselves. But I think, again, there is evidence coming from health more anecdotally that there is less repurposing. People tend to want to use resources they, as they are, and this could be related to that kind of degree of quality assurance that comes from the whole resource. Technical issues. Again, uh, we, we heard a lot about technical issues this morning, and there were lots of technical issues that came up. But I think the one thing that came very strongly was that there were technical issues specific to health, such as you know, access within NHS websites and NHS firewalls and, and all those sort of things that need to be got over. But also the fact that people weren't really looking for these resources in, in OER repositories. They weren't using things like RSS feeds so much. They tended to go where they knew. And that was either you know, health-related websites, general web searches, and so on. So in terms of technical issues, I think there's what we found from, from health is there's a need to take the resources to where people are and not expect them to come to us. So I was interested in the impact of OERs on the health and social care sector. So through the TIGER repository, which is the repository which has got interprofessional group resources, um, so that stands for Transforming Interprofessional Groups Through Education Resources, I worked with 10 champions that I identified around the country who worked in health and social care to see how they were actually going to be using these potential resources. And I very much developed a partnership with them, and I offered very intensive support to these 10 champions in their use, their potential repurpose and reuse, and as well as hopefully adding to the repository. And what was most interesting out of all the um, champions, it was the ones that approached me outside of the UK, which wasn't actually really within the remit, but they came to me from, um, from different ways through the repository that are likely to have the most impact in terms of the use of the repository. And they were identifying a specific need for interprofessional education materials in health and social care, where IPE, interprofessional education, is very much an emerging discipline. So um, the contacts that have actually identified materials which they wanted to use be further developed, but they actually needed support in their use through the repository. It's interesting because out of all of those Champions. These are the ones that where the relationships are likely to continue beyond the fellowship where this work was being done, and but also the other fellow, uh, the other champions were very much perhaps going to make further contact and need further support as they were, began to look at their um, resources and update them for future years um, in their teaching, but. 
across all the champions, they all um, stated how their knowledge was very low about OERs, and they certainly needed that ongoing support to engage. And the other interesting outcome of the project is the opportunity for external income generation that that has actually presented, which wasn't obviously a retention aim in the beginning. The big issue, though, for health and social care, of course, is all the materials that are being developed within that repository have been developed within the UK. And they are going to be accessed around the world where the context is not, for their own health, is not necessarily going to be the same. So it's an ideal opportunity that they are tagged with using a Creative Commons license because the end user most definitely needs to adapt the materials for the local context. Um, but of course, as Richard's alluded to, the problem still, even within our own country, is something like NHS has firewalls and these other countries have even more problems in terms of access and being able to download and um, certain materials. So, you know, this comes with some what we've called health warnings that if this um, repository is going to ensure ongoing engagement, which we hope, we've got to, remain, got to argue that the materials must remain contemporary and it has to be evidence-based because of the context in which it's going to be used. And we certainly within the UK have to meet current, current guidelines and accepted practice and they, of course, change very rapidly within our own health and social care contacts and that's certainly going to be the case for um, overseas as well um, and we also we, we're very much mindful about who owns these materials because um, we had a great debate when we were when we were working up the case study about well if you put out some materials and you are saying that you are sort of an expert in that particular area how do you know what the, that end user is going to do with that material which is potentially problematic for professionals particularly when they're registered with um, awarding bodies etc so we have to think about who owns these materials in terms of how they're going to be updated in the future. And we very much were thinking more of an exchange model as opposed to perhaps adding continually. Um, and of course, if they are adapted away from the original intention, which is obviously what an OER wants, does the end user have it within a safe practice model? So that was a great concern to us. So Tiger is certainly an excellent example of how, within the current economic climate, these materials can become accessible, adaptable, and they're certainly innovative. But we very much would argue that they, particularly for health and social care, they should be embedded within a live curriculum, because that means there is a clear mechanism for updating as required. And this, is, of course, is particularly important for practitioners for their continuing professional development. Um, but we certainly feel, nevertheless, it was a good way um, of disseminating best practice in health and social care. Um, we also made some consideration about the wider community responsibilities and decision-making. And um, this is moving more on to the area that Viv was doing within the biomedical sciences. And um, she also similarly found that the global or, or, um, audience for these materials are vast. 
Um, she also was arguing about that there was different types of learners that are going to engage, not just uh, informal learners, but obviously primary and secondary learners. And very interesting about how much things are being used, adapted, and does it actually matter? Um, and we, we, within that, we both agreed that we've got to think about how we release OER so that we're responsible. So, for example, um, say a patient post-mortem image, which could be um, very relevant to people who are working within that field, might be quite insensitive to other end users, as well as things like bereavement. And who's going to make these decisions, ultimately? Yeah, I think there's just one more recommendation. Yes. So our recommendations, just mainly two of them, was to support the development of partnerships and communities around the repositories of resources. And also, secondly, it's necessary to take OER to the real world um, so that where reuse is really needed in communities for health. Thank you. much. Uh, moving on from health, we're now looking at science and statistics teaching. Uh, Paul Hathley, Jackie Carter and Mark Oliver have been working on this. Uh, Jackie Carter can't be with us, but Paul will present for her. So. Well, okay. well, good afternoon. Right, where are we? What's happening I've broken it. Oh, good. Here we go, then. Right. Um, start off with... So, we're, it's a game of three halves here, then, if you, if you like. There's my bit, uh, Jackie's bit, and then Mark's bit. Uh, I'll start off with, with my bit, experimental science and uh, the practical sand pit. Let's give a little bit of background to myself. I'm, I come from an experiment, experiment... I'm an experimental physicist by background. Um, taught, labor, taught, in, taught in laboratories, and really the... So we really feel that the uh, the importance of laboratories is is huge. It's just it's just the the be all, well not the be all and end all, but it's the mo one of the most important things in science education. And I've sort of morphed into doing some work with uh, virtual laboratories, online laboratories, computer based um, uh, laboratory resources. And I found myself thinking, how can I ensure that firstly these experiments, online experiments, are relevant, and also how can I help? Um, other, other practitioners in experimental science use um, on use virtual resources that they want to use, not that somebody else has designed for them. So, science teaching then the experiment, experimentals, experiments are fundamental within the sciences, and it really is a major issue within uh, education, all the way from primary or to the higher education. The empirical method, the basis of modern science, it's what you observe that really matters. It's not what somebody scribbles on a bit of paper that counts at the end of the day. It's what actually happens at the end of the day. It's why we spent several billion pounds digging a dirty great big hole in Switzerland and France to find the Higgs boson. It's because we wanted to find it. We wanted to see that it was there, and it wasn't any good that somebody had scribbled on, well, Professor Higgs had scribbled on a bit of paper and said, it's here. We want to actually see it, or at least the evidence for it. But there's a big problem. 
Labs are increasingly costly. They take up a lot of space. They take up a lot of resources. The equipment is becoming increasingly expensive to, um, to, to, to purchase and to, and to maintain for a variety of reasons. And that means that we've seen a major reduction, a major drop-off in laboratory provision across the whole education sector. We've really got to address that. We're going to make sure that our future generations of scientists are good scientists. They're not, they don't just know stuff, but they can do stuff as well. Other issues, accessibility. We heard a little bit about accessibility earlier on today. That's an important aspect of laboratories. And usability as well. You know, making sure that usability means that you can actually use it, that it makes sense to you when you're using it. And hence this project, which was what I called Laboratories for All and the Practical Sandpit. So where did this come from? Well, I produced, as part of a, um, a Skills for Scientists OER, um, OER and just funded project a couple of years ago, I produced some online resources to go into the journal repository. They were complete within themselves. So practitioners could come along, pick those up, and use them within their own, within their own classes. But perhaps that isn't what people actually wanted. Perhaps they'd rather want bits and build their own laboratories, their own resources. Hence the sand pit. A pit of bits that they could put together to make their own experiments. And a major part of, of my project then was looking at how that might be achieved. I set out, obviously, the grand aim of actually making this sand pit at the end of the day. Very, very, um, very, very ambitious. But I ended, what I'd spent a lot of time doing at the end of the day was, was looking at how this might be achieved. And I, I investigated a number of, um, a number of packages to, to, for, to, to enable, pro, enable programming, and I had at the back of my mind a number of things. Firstly, it had to be um, preferably open source. Uh, last thing universities want to spend out several thousand pounds on the software, software development package. Had to be easy to use. The last thing an academic designing laboratory wants to do is to learn a new programming language or a new programming paradigm. I had that problem. I had that problem. I don't like it. I'm not a programmer. Um, big strings, big, big, big strings of code make my brain hurt. Make my, make my brain crawl out of my ears. Something which is nice and straightforward. So, free, straightforward, cross-platform. In other words, it can run on Android, Windows. MacOS, iOS, Linux, whatever. Wanted to be fully cross, fully cross platform. Um, there was a few other, a few, a few other things as, a few other things as well. I think I can't remember exactly what they all were, but it's quite a lot of criteria. Uh, here's, here's an example of some of the um, uh, some of the packages I looked at. Um, a few of those you might be familiar with. Scratch is a familiar one. That's uh, that's used a lot in schools. It's a very very simple programming environment. Um, I, wouldn't I wouldn't necessarily recommend that because it's possibly just too simple. Um, there, there, is a, there, there are some variants on Scratch and developments on that which perhaps are, are more usable, but perhaps that's not the best way. The others, uh, I've got, we've got things like Eclipse, and, which is Java programming, uh, Tersus, which is a web-based production system, um, other things which are sort of Python and uh, ActionScript. So look at those first. The... The two Java-based ones, they're good, but there are, but there's, it's a pretty steep learning curve with those ones. They're open source, but there is a steep learning curve. And the Tursus in particular is a graphical programming system, so you make little blocks and you join them up. It's the kind of thing I like doing, you know, 
if you, if you, uh, if you like drawing circuits, you can sort of draw a, draw a program. But it's best suited to database work. It might not be particularly good for developing experiments. You have got a really sort of perverted to do experiments. Um, one minute, okay. Uh, Flash, got to pay for. Rub that one out. Boa constructor, Python. Lots of, uh, lots of academics are used to Python. Uh, implementations, well, the original sandpit's still quite a long way off. Oh, and, uh, but, there, but we've, uh, look, we've, 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 we've developed, developed and got involved with um, a few other areas as well. The library of laboratories, or LILA, and implementing virtual laboratories here at the Open University, um, other collaborative product, product projects, and with the uh, emerging Wilson Laboratory. And finally, some reflections there. Uh, we've got some importance of experimental science. Um, we really want to try to find methods which, not, which reduce the learning curve, uh, um, free, available, accessible. We need to do more work there. And lots of outputs are coming out of this, both conceptual outputs and other projects. Uh, moving on briefly to OER and statistics. Can I do that? I think you better leave Jackie out. I'm sorry. Oh, dear, I'm sorry. Yes, okay, then. Yes, I'm sorry about that. I think uh, well, okay, there was some statistics stuff there. Um, <laughs> have I just sort of flushed uh, through that? It's I'm sorry, Jackie. Good. Read it, read it is really report. good stuff. It's yes. really good stuff. Just flush through yeah. it there. But uh, really, it's, uh, if I get to the conclusions... Uh, very timely case studies. I'm really sorry, Jackie. <laughs> I, got, I got carried away. Um, uh, but but the, uh, there were a number of things in statistics, educa statistics education and statistics literacy which are coming directly out of this score fellowship. And I should emphasize that statistics, knowing about that, is very important within the, within the sciences. So I have to leave it there. Once again, apologies for Jackie. And uh, thank you for your attention. Hi, that's me. Um, didn't really need to do an abstract for something so small, but I did it anyway. So uh, let's get on to the detail. Uh, science and technology, um, as we've heard in the uh, mention of experimental work, um, can be difficult to represent on a two-dimensional screen, but we have 3D technology which can help us. But there are other things that OER simply can't do. We shouldn't blow up our um, subject out of all proportions. So you know, there's still a big role for field work and field work. And, and smells don't ever get talked about in the context of OER, but it is an important part of obviously chemistry and biology and other topics. Um, I've come up with these OER alignment levels relatively recently because I suddenly worked out that this was important in relationship to what I was thinking. And um, there may be papers which have these levels, but I've simply um, given my view of them. So at level one, we take a paper source and computerise it. At level two, we introduce images and sound. Level three, um, we somehow put some kind of model within the software of something like a duck, for example, or an economic system so that there's something more um, real-world-like happening on the screen, and then we can allow the student to interact with a model at level four. And um, Wavelet Wonder, which is my project, which I've been developing actually over a period of several years, is difficult 
the wavelets within signal processing are difficult for students because of the factors that I've mentioned there. And um, to give you a quick idea of what signal processing is, um, even in this context today, as I'm talking into this microphone, um, then there's some signal processing going on in the sound system to make my voice um, come not only louder through the speaker, but also to sound a bit better than it actually is. Um, so, um, so on the PC, you get something called a graphic equaliser in the sound software, which is where you can change your voice. You can make the bass higher, the treble higher, whatever. And the well-known MP3 algorithm uses signal processing, more specifically a thing called wavelets for signal compression. So my website itself is at level three because it includes some sound clips. And, um, but the students operate at level four because they actually use another software package called MATLAB to interact. What wavelets are, this is the difficult bit. Um, if you take one mathematical function and represent it as another function or a group of other functions, that's called functional representation. And these things called wavelets, which actually look like that, um, and they lend themselves to representing waveforms which are a finite length or time-changing signals. For example, a drumbeat, that's a waveform of a finite length. Um, you can use them in compression, also in feature detection of signals, so that's what we do. Um, so that's my website. It's not just open access yet, but it will be soon, so don't go clicking because it won't let you in. Sound clip. No sound clip. Okay, there's no sound clip, that's fine. Well, actually, I'll do the sound clip, okay? I'll do it, uh, me with me, my guitar, and I go... Like that, okay. That's the sound clip. And... <laughs> see? Um, and really... What the wavelet representation um, picks out is aspects of the sound. Um, so, um, it, in particular, there's these things, the D3, D4, D2, all that stuff down there. It's picking out things like when I actually plucked the guitar. Okay? Um, so that's what this thing called a wavelet decomposition can pick out. It's just the mouse went on to the next slide rather than to the um, sound clip, which is just stuff, isn't it? Um, so... I've done a lot of work in the course of the year, and I found out a lot of things, but um, really, um, an OER doesn't solve all the educational problems in the world. It sits within an existing framework. One thing I've been looking at recently is the idea of learning gaps, and a number of other fellows have picked up on theory practice gaps. Um, so I'm looking into that a little bit more. And um, for these projects to work, you need continuity of funding. I had a, pro a fun project for this that gave me funding, and this project has had funding and I shall look for some more. And um, I've been looking at learning styles like uh, threshold concepts. Now, Margaret McDougall introduced me to those uh, concepts, but they came from other sources, which I'm investigating now, and those of you who are educational theorists will know what I'm talking about. And maybe if the web capability levels I've mentioned can be linked to learning style, we can find out the best kinds of OER for science and technology so we don't spend a lot of time and money developing resources which aren't particularly useful. Thank you. Thank you. Great. Um, 
Now we're into research skills development. Uh, Vivian Sieben in Fairweather are going to present this. One advantage of being late in the afternoon is we, we can build on what other people have said. So Ellen has kindly shown the VITA research um, development framework and explained it. So what we've been trying to do in our project is find ways of using OE, different ways of using OER to develop research development skills. And then this next slide is just the RDF presented as a table. We're talking about three different projects. Ian's, which is the creation and release of OERs. Mine, which is repurposing and reusing OERs. And then the tutor release of OERs at Doncaster College. Right, so um, my project was looking at resources being created by Methods at Manchester. This is the, the Methods at Manchester website uh, on the screen. Uh, it's, methods at Manchester acts as a kind of a hub to um, bring together research methods expertise at Manchester and make it available across the university, across the Faculty of, social, of um, Humanities, which includes social sciences, um, and also to make that expertise available beyond the university, to make it open, uh, partly um, in order to raise the profile of Manchester. Um, so I haven't really got time to go through all the uh, areas of the site, but essentially what happens is that there are um, a number of events at the university, uh, primarily a series of lunchtime talks under the title What Is, and then add on whatever research method, ethnography or whatever. Um, and these are um, podcasted, so they're recorded as audio recordings with Camtasia uh, captures of the PowerPoints, and they're given usually by um, members of the Faculty of Humanities who have expertise in that particular area. Um, and these were put on the website. Initially, they were put on the website mainly because um, not everyone can attend the talk at the time that they need to attend the talk. And because the whole rationale behind Methods at Manchester is to make uh, research methods expertise available in a needs-based way. Because students often find, um, as uh, Eleanor's talk um, kind of flagged up, um, and some of the other talks have also flagged up, students find a kind of a disconnect between research and development and their, um, their thesis, their actual research. So if you... Um, if you require students to attend a lot of courses and a lot of um, sessions, what they tend to do is they see it as um, a sort of a parallel thing that they have to do besides their research. And my student survey flagged up a whole bunch of um, uh, comments from students that I don't have time to go through. But the, the gist of it basically is I don't have time to learn research methods because I'm busy doing my research. Um, <clears throat> so the idea was if you put this stuff out in a way that students can access when they actually need it, it makes much more sense, it makes this, this link. So it was important to make these things available on the web. Um, and so this, I haven't got time to really show it, but um, that probably won't work anyway, is one of these videos. Um, <clears throat> they were put out there, and then it was decided to release them um, without any kind of password. Um, and... Oh, no. <laughs> no, we don't want to proceed. 
this car. There we are. Um, so <clears throat> the idea was to put the stuff um, out there and then not to password protect it because that would actually make it more difficult for people to access and also to put it out on um, YouTube and iTunes U because that um, enables greater external access and that, that serves this function of um, uh, raising the university's profile. The problems I found in, in looking at the way this is used and the way this is produced was were the, centered around the idea that it's not actually primarily designed as a collection of OERs. That's not in the rationale. In fact, when I started questioning people about OERs and Creative Commons licenses, I found, as many other case studies have shown, people don't think too much about copyright. They don't care too much about the licensing, and they're not really worried about all these issues that we get very worried about. So this stuff was being created and just put out there, made freely and openly available without much thinking. A lot of people don't even know who, whether, whether they or the university owns the copyright. So there are issues about permissions. Staff are asked, obviously, people who give the talks are asked their permission to release this openly. But whether they really think about what that means or what the implications of that are when they create their, when they prepare their talk, I'm not sure. Uh, licensing, the videos currently have no license at all. So they're not, they don't have Creative Commons. And um, the, the most important issue for me was this issue of context and support. The things are there, they sit there on the website, but do students really know when they need them at what stage? How are they supposed to uh, decide what resources they need? And so my intention was to look at the RDF as a way of trying to map these resources so that students can, um, uh, can know what they need. And there I also encountered uh, similar problems to Eleanor that I assumed students were using the RDF because it's in the induction package and I assumed supervisors were using the RDF. In my surveys I found that although very few staff actually responded to the survey, so this is not representative, but 100% of them didn't use the RDF. <laughs> um, students it was a bit more patchy but still a lot of them weren't using it. Um, so that was the biggest problem I had with the RDF. Um, and yet again, I've tried to use the RDF, uh, but in this case, we had, sorry, we had a, a workshop program supporting graduate students develop the skills that required by the RDF, um, but it wasn't complete, and many of them wanted to come at different times. So I've used the RDF to identify as the starting point to find OERs, and I built Skills Portal. It began as just researcher training, um, using topics from RDF and in the last year it's expanded rather dramatically so it now covers study skills, plagiarism, information literacy, numeracy, employability and one th this echoes other people's findings. A resource may be, is now being used by a range from a research fellow down to a school, school pupil. So our users are very, very broad. So to do this, it was really quite straightforward. Um, resource discovery was probably the hardest part of the project, and it was certainly the hardest part to teach someone else to do. I primarily used Durham. The technology wasn't difficult. They all come out in nice sort of piles of files that you can do things with. It was actually very easy to explain to learning technologies how to customize them. 
Customizing the text and modifying them is obviously more time consuming than sticking a quick CSS on. Um, but I did stick a quick CSS on so they all look surreified. Now, this again echoes what other people have said. The resources mostly come from very reputable institutions, primarily the Open University, Leicester, UCLan, MMU, and the University of Leeds. So they have already been reviewed, they have already been used by students, and they're really very clean mostly. One or two were so good, it was worth converting them from Word into HTML, and they were a little bit rougher. Now obviously I couldn't have produced the wealth that Skills Portal's got in the time that I've had, which hasn't been very much. So that's the mapping that we've done. And this is evidence that people are using it. Um, this is sort of April to July 2012. And you can see it's spread over most of England, bits of Ireland, Wales and Scotland. But it's also gone across the world. The only places that aren't using it now are parts of Africa, tiny amounts in South America and Greenland. <laughs> I'm now going to talk about Esther's project. You're going to do it. Yes, yes. So um, the third project was Esther's project, who uh, can't be here today, um, which was the, the other end of the spectrum. that She, what she was trying to do was working in um, a HE and FE context um, she was looking at the potential for embedding OERs into actual teaching of research methods. And so she worked with a number of tutors and asked them to, um, to trial using selected OERs in their teaching um, and um, tried to get some sense of how this, um, how this worked or didn't work. Um, and these were basically the things that she found. She found that the OERs were quite successful in enabling interdisciplinary thinking in research methods. Uh, and that chimes very well with what I found, that students and supervisors to an extent are often quite tribal about their disciplines. And they don't really want to use resources that aren't tagged with their disciplinary tag, as it were, because they feel they'll be somehow uh, inappropriate. And using, OER, using OERs actually helps people to get out of that mentality and realise that some of this stuff is transferable and avoid reinventing the wheel. Um, the other really useful thing about these OERs was that they were live and continuously updated that, um, because, people, because of the, the use and reuse, uh, as Vivian's found, they were, they were updated and that, that was an important uh, aspect of the teaching. Um, a concern was that it redefines the tutor's role. Not necessarily a negative concern, but um, uh, that using OERs redefines the role of the tutor and the, um, the interaction that they're having with students so that the tutor becomes more of a kind of a pointer, um, an advisor, and students are, are more independent, which could be a very good thing. Um, so, uh, and it also encouraged the development of academic practice. Using the OERs encouraged tutors to think more about their own academic practice. So it's very successful in that respect. Um, there were some serious concerns about the use of OERs as a time-saving mechanism, that um, it was kind of seen as, by some as an easy way out to avoid preparing their own resources, and that that was problematic. So um, it has to be done in, a, in, a, in the right kind of way. Uh -huh. um, so, is that any conclusions? Yeah, okay. Um, so, yeah, the conclusions we came to um, were... That it is possible to map OERs to the RDF. Uh, Surrey Skills has been very effective in this. Um, 
Esther's project also mapped the resources that were used by the tutors to the RDF. And um, I also found that it was possible to do so, but, the, but in a limited way, because the methods at Manchester Resources are, are targeted at research methods rather, rather than the broader research development skills. Um, and so they all fit into two domains, basically, uh, two subdomains of the first domain of the RDF. So it's not that useful for students uh, to tag resources because they're all in the same box. Um, but what it might be useful for if I pursue this project further is that the RDF has phases which link to the level of the resource and to map on the resources to the phases might be very useful. So, so essentially we've shown that they can be mapped to the RDF. Um, and the OERs have a lot of potential for research and development um, as standalone resources uh, for use within communities of practice. One thing which has come out earlier today which we've all which all three of our projects um, certainly found, was that um, recommendations from peers and from supervisors and from lecturers were key in getting um, students to, to value resources and to use resources. So it was much more effective if students were working within a community of practice where these resources were being used and recommended, um, then they would turn to them. Um, and also that branding was very important. So students used methods at Manchester Resources because they were Manchester. And my survey showed that they, they tended to go to other... If they did look for OERs outside of methods at Manchester, they would go to other university websites or places that they knew. Um, so this kind of community of practice is a, is, seems to be a key way of... Uh, embedding resources and we showed that these or Esther's project particularly showed that they can be embedded into teaching um, we showed that, that, that OERs can inspire and inform teaching developments so that can be used to change practice um, and another thing which emerged from Esther's project which would have come out more if she'd been able to be here to, to present it was that um, part of the OER um, movement involves making data available open data, and that provides opportunities for students to engage in, in real-world learning by using real-world data. Uh, I think that's, that's all we've... Okay, outcomes. So, um, one th the things that have come out that we've pulled out of all our three projects uh, were that it's very important to try to deal with copyright and consent at the outset in producing OERs. That's the thing that Methods at Manchester is now having to, to go back and think about. Um, that OERs are more likely to be used if recommended and trusted by, by other um, by other ones yeah. or by a trusted other that's it um, OERs tend to be multimedia and that's very important that's very popular um, students and uh, tutors like the multimedia value um, students value the opportunity to, to use OERs independently when they, when they choose to, so independent learning is important. Uh, quality assurance is very important, and this idea of recommendation by peers and branding um, is key. Uh, that using OERs provides a reputational advantage to institutions. This raising the profile idea um, is, a, is a key motivator in getting your institution to back your OERs. Um, and uh, in terms of repurposing, the, the most important things are resource discovery, um, 
the pedagogic value and the subject and technical skills. Okay. And uh, last but by no means least this afternoon we have Tony Coughlin and Antonio Martinez Arboleda and they've uh, come up with a much better title than the one I gave them, uh, Approaches to External Collaboration. So over to you, Tony. Thank you. <coughs> okay, um, we got put on last in the hope that you'd all have gone home. And the reason is, um, it's kind of an apologetic presentation, because we made a dreadful mistake. And I'll just go over here to show you what happened. Um, just over a year ago, um, Jonathan and I spoke on the phone. resources people. Um, when we started looking, it turned out that some other people had thought about relationships. And it turns out Stephen Downs had talked about it a few years ago as well. And earlier this afternoon, um, you heard Jackie and Richard saying that the community about, around the resources is as important as the resources. So our three projects kind of focus on that. Sarah, who's sadly in bed with her dreadful cold. <laughs> That's really sad, because if she was here, she'd do the most brilliant presentation. Um, but she was working with a film company and was actually working on set for the last year, which is fabulous. Um, I was working with charities, and Antonio was working with the Association of Graduate Recruiters. Correct. So we're all working with people outside universities, and that's really important. Um, I'm just going to skim, skim over Sarah's work, because um, I really can't do it justice. But she has done presentations elsewhere, hasn't she? Yeah. Um, so she was working with an archive that was outside of a university, and that's really important. So we've all been looking outside of universities. And it's the Sally Potter Archive. So Sally Potter is a filmmaker, is that right? Yeah. And um, she's um, posted up her, her company, posted up loads of resources about Hashemax films. My bit um, is charity-wise, working with um, a sector skills body for the volunteer sector in the UK. And the important bit for me, was the relationship between the policymakers, these were the people, believe it or not, in um, Whitehall and places like that who set public policy in particularly big cities. <coughs> There's us a lot who know about e-learning and quality control and things like that. And the trainers in the volunteer sector, really important kind of intermediary people. 
So the idea was, if we could get people together to bring harness all those different um, skills and experiences to work together on OERs. And we thought the way we might do it is have an arena, an online arena, where people could come together and collaborate around the OERs. It all got a bit muddy. Um, I looked so enviously at some of the other projects where people have been in control of them. Um, but this got very complicated because of the need of people to make a living. So um, we had to work out how the free OERs would relate to paid-for training. And that's why, instead of it being a simple circle, there's this other circle around the outside of it that allows people to make a living. In terms of sustainability, that's really important. Um, and that's become re just bigger and bigger, I think. You know, that somehow OERs are only going to keep going if we can create a sustainability package around them as well. And that's over to Antonio. Thank you very much, Tony. Thank you very much for waiting until the end. I always like to um, um, bring connections with other people's presentations. Um, so this is the home box. Um, the Open Educational Repositories, Repository of Arts and Humanities in the UK, and it was funded by JISC. And uh, yeah, uh, David was one of the founders of the Humbox, <laughs> with myself and others. Uh, and uh, yes, um, you'll be pleased to know that uh, uh, nobody in Greenland is using Humbox either. <laughs> <laughs> So uh, my project concentrated on the review of open education resources, review and endorsement uh, by graduate recruiting employers. Uh, and these graduate recruiting employers would look at employability-related resources published in the home box. The home box um, allows anyone with an account uh, to actually uh, upload materials and post comments, and create collections. It's an extremely open repository, so um, it's an ideal place for an employer or any other external partner to engage. Um, trying to um, contextualize a bit or um, make the educational case for this type of engagement, it's important that we, we think about employability and how it is being delivered uh, as part of the so-called student experience uh, in higher education. And um, we, sh we have to bear in mind that there are a lot of professionals working in career centers, career services, who are uh, contributing to delivering those employable skills um, outside the curriculum in a co-curricular fashion sometimes, but that at the other extreme of the provision of these skills, uh, we have uh, academic practitioners trying to embed those skills within the traditional academic curriculum in very different ways. Um, so, um, if you look at the literature um, on business and university collaboration, you can see that actually the pedagogical ideas of uh, employers uh, are not that different from what we all think should be uh, a contemporary and forward-looking education in 
arts and humanities. There is a lot of support for social constructive uh, methodologies. There is a lot of support for meaningful learning. Uh, so um, perhaps we could start looking at employers as allies hmm, for the renovation, methodological renovation of arts and humanities pedagogy. I know this is extremely contentious, so I'm happy to answer questions at the end. Um, so my, my hypothesis in the study was to um, look at the feasibility hmm, of a, a new approach to employability within the curriculum, uh, and this approach would be based on uh, discussion around cases of uh, specific examples of practice, uh, discussion between employers, uh, graduate recruiters in this case, and academics who are trying hard to improve the way in which they delivered uh, these skills in the curriculum. And obviously the home box was an ideal place for this. Um, so as part of my research, I interviewed uh, a group of academics, practitioners, um, who published resources in the home box, and most of them had experience in what reviewing resources was about. Um, we also selected uh, some samples of learning and teaching um, that could be considered, could be labeled as employability-related. Uh, and then I interviewed um, graduate recruiters um, and the questions I asked were to do with their role in higher education, how they saw themselves in higher education, how they perceived employability in arts and humanities, uh, and mm, anything to do with their involvement in open educational resources and open educational practice. Of course, there was a lot of pedagogy involved in this process because uh, mm, most of the employers, the same sadly as most academics, are not really familiar with open educational resources. Um, the uh, engagement with employers actually was more complex than the engagement with the academic practitioners because I had a first lot of interviews, then uh, I presented some resources to the employers for them to uh, have a go at reviewing them, and then I would interview finally those employers who had been reviewing resources about their experience, trying to look at the way in which they had approached the resource and trying to think how they would engage in a real life situation. This was about piloting. Mm -hmm. And um, before I go into the general conclusions of the three projects, because I think we have a lot of things to say in common, I'll um, give you a little bit of a taster of my own case study. Um, the dialogue with employers was really interesting because uh, not everybody agrees hmm, on what is an employability-related resource in arts and humanities within the curriculum. Uh, the type of engagement has been educational, hmm, discussing the methodology, and um, I would say that it's an it's a engagement worth having hmm, and worth having uh, in public. Um, another interesting thing I'd like to highlight, by the way, I recommend you that you read the reports, really, because we're not doing justice to, it, to them with, uh, uh, in, in such a short space of time. Um, the engagement with, uh, between academics and employers generates a vast amount of externalities hmm? because um, employers engage with academics educationally 
publicly in the home box, but at the same time, uh, employers are helping uh, the institutions to showcase their good practice, they're helping them to disseminate the good practice, uh, and it has obviously uh, important implications in terms of marketing. It can have a potential as a marketing tool. At the same time, the intervention of the employer in the uh, uh, educational engagement can help the employer to enhance their reputation as uh, agents for social transformation, change. All this falls within the, the corporate and social responsibility remit. So what starts like one tutor teaching history, talking to somebody who uh, may have something to say about their resources, can become something far more complex. And obviously, uh, the engagement uh, is, is digital in a sense, but the majority of the engagement happens outside the home box. Mm? There are a lot of relationships, there are a lot of uh, communication that doesn't occur, doesn't have to occur publicly. Mm? It's not all 100% automatic. Mm? Uh, the digital engagement is only uh, the end product of other type of engagement which can be classed as open educational practice. Um, so looking at the report, um, the first conclusion of, well, I'm, I'm going to say only a few of them. Um, the first conclusion is that in, in each one of our projects, we had actually to um, understand uh, the different cultures, the different practices, the different values mm, of the external partners that we were engaging with. Um, in higher education and education in general, our priority, I like to think, is to provide good learning opportunities for our students. Um, this, is also, this can also be the case of other external agents. But you have to think that they have other priorities, many other priorities, and perhaps educational engagement for them and helping students to learn more and better is simply a means to an end. Mm? So we have to understand uh, their motivations. We have to understand uh, who in each one of these organizations, mm, because organizations are complex, who in each one of these organizations may be interested in engaging and why. Because it can be very frustrating trying to approach external partners of any kind mm, without actually understanding what is in it for them in the educational engagement. It depends on who you talk to within a certain company or an organization. You can get the most positive answer or, you, you know, they can ignore you. So it's good. We have a number of recommendations for practitioners wanting to engage in this type of open educational practice. The three projects started as an attempt to cover the need of... Having more channels of communication with external partners, um, but in the three projects, actually, we discovered that uh, it's not about create, simply creating new channels. Mm? You have to look at any kind of pre-existing relationship between the external partner and the university, because on the back of that previous uh, relationship, you can build another relationship in which you engage educationally with the resources. Uh, it's much easier to articulate it that way. Um, spaces and contexts 
are important. Uh, we have discovered, obviously, that for uh, certain organizations, being able to engage in an educational repository uh, is not as attractive as engaging publicly in their own web pages, for instance. And um, similar um, concerns, uh, you know, apply to the other two projects as well, that the spaces and the context are very important. Barriers, I mentioned before, that the, the culture of giving away stuff for free is, is quite unique to, to uh, charities and, uh, and uh, obviously education, um, it's very difficult to actually make people understand right. how it, this happens. It used to be a quality of education, I think. Yeah. yeah. It's changed. It's just, it's changing. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, to f uh, um, conclude, um, we had three journeys to open practice. We started with relatively simple propositions of engagement around open educational resources, but we discovered a wealth of networks and relationships that actually changed the course of our projects in many ways. And uh, it all became about open educational practice. And um, uh, very important to remember, this is about educational engagement on a specific uh, learning resources. Uh, I don't know if you are aware of uh, the initiative by MIT of the Next Decade Alliance in which um, sponsors are actually encouraged to um, have... Uh, some kind of uh, portfolio of endorsement of resources and, and sponsors can actually indicate, you know, what courses in the repository are relevant for their workforce or for their customers. This is uh, something, what we've been doing uh, is something relatively different, or I would say quite di very different in that we engage educationally with specific pieces of uh, education practice. And uh, I think that's everything. Thank you very much. And very well done for the uh, speakers in this se second session on timekeeping. If you would all come up to the front now, please. Uh, we have just under 15 minutes uh, left for uh, question and answers. At a quarter two, uh, we get driven out at uh, Sabre Point uh, because uh, this room gets used for uh, fencing. So uh, um, I don't think we'll be overstaying our, uh, our welcome on this occasion. So as before, if you can wait for the microphone to, to come to you. Um, it was interesting. I felt that in the first session this afternoon, there was a recurring theme which was uh, discoverability and things not being actually as easy and as straightforward as is often assumed in terms of students and others finding resources. The theme in this second session, and it wasn't planned, uh, seemed to be community and the significance of community um, and uh, connecting OER to, to other key activities. And that was mentioned by, by quite a few. But anyway... Uh, Questions or observations? <coughs> yes. Question here for um, Tony, I think. Um, working with the voluntary sector and sort of at the intersection of higher education and the voluntary sector, what do you think were the, the key differences? working with people outside 
HE in terms of um, what you envisage their needs with OER will be? How do you think there's a, a distinct difference in terms of approach? We'll try and get uh, close to a microphone. <laughs> sorry, mm. right. Are they all working? They're all working. They're all working, okay. Um, if there's one difference, I'd say that the volunteer sector listen to the people who use their services and that a lot of the volunteer sector are directed by the people who use their services. HE just doesn't do that. <laughs> HE, we worked out, we work on a top-down model of we decide what goes into the repositories and we decide what we release and the volunteer sector, they abhor that model. <laughs> um, now, that's a sweeping generalisation, but if there was a difference, I'd say that's it. Does that answer the question? Um, it was something that came up about the, the REF, the RF. Uh, the research sort of framework for PhD students and so on, Not and yet. the teachers and the uh, students don't or do look at this. I got an impression that they, they didn't. And you, you talked about this link with OER, and how, in what way is OER going to assist in this sort of opening up and making the, let's say, the, the good practices available and understood in terms of the methodologies that are good for, I think, well, writing skills for putting together dissertations and for following research rigour. <coughs> can it? Can it bridge this gap? I can certainly give you evidence that student, the individuals are using and spending quite significant amounts of time on <laughs> And there seems to be a correlation between the more likely a resource is going to be used by a graduate student or, or a member of staff, the longer will be spent on it. So the one that's the most, that has most time spent on it is research methods and information literacy searching. And that has about 25 minutes as a mean time on it. Now, you could argue that they, these people aren't going to spend time unless they thought they were getting something out of it. Yeah, I mean, I, I've been a bit critical of it in, in, the fact, in the sense that not many people are using it, but actually it's quite a new thing. Um, so that's one of the reasons they're not using it. And um, I think it will get more used. It's certainly, you know, that it's the way, it's the direction it's going. And I, and I think it, it has the potential to be very useful um, in connection with OERs in the sense that the OERs are out there, but students don't necessarily know what they need. And the whole purpose of this RDF thing, when it is in use properly, is that it's a way for students and their supervisors to kind of work out what they need and so if, if, if we can map our OERs to the RDF, that addresses the problem of discoverability. Any more? Yes, sir. right up here. <laughs> um, hi there. My um, question relates to the last um, presentation that was on. Um, and I was wondering... Do you see a sort of growing tension between the, um, the kind of desire and the want to produce open education resources and the, the need then to make money for the uh, sectors that you were looking at? Right. That's a good question for you. Who's going to answer that? <laughs> 
I, I can say something. In, in, in the case of my project, I think uh, the money consideration is quite peripheral. Uh, but um, the graduate recruiters who participated in the, in the research, they all had um, a lot of work, a lot of things to do. They were really stressed people. I could see that they were hard-working people with lots of things. And uh, like anyone else in the private sector and also in the public sector, you know, they have to prioritize um, what they do with the time. And uh, if um, there is a reason why it be convenient, um, appropriate to engage with academics, for instance, imagine that uh, uh, a certain graduate recruiter has a good relationship with the career centers, career center of a specific campus, because they help that recruiter to uh, organize all the events mm, uh, in their campus. If there is a, an existing relationship, why they should have some kind of uh, uh, good communication, then you know they may prioritize that engagement and they may say yes. You know, it's good for us to have a relationship with this university, so we'll engage with them on something else. Uh, so, yeah, there are always cost-benefit considerations, but I, think, I honestly don't think they are very different to our cost-benefit, you know, decisions when we have to decide, do I write a presentation for this symposium or do I just get on with my marking? You know, it's, it's a matter of priorities, as much as it is for us. I have got You've reminded me of something really important. Yeah. Um, I guess a lot of people here have been kind of slightly ed techy. I can see Chris is wanting to say something. No, 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 I've got a question. Because oh, so, um, Chris could probably answer this better than I could, but I think uh, Linux would be fairly widely recognised here. Um, and as a model, it's really important that you've got a free bit of software but there's a, um, an installation and hosting community that makes money. And I think you described it as symbiosis. Yeah. Um, that you've got a... There's some bits that is right that they're free, and they work best when they're free by people collaborating. There's other bits that it's right to pay for a service for, and the two can coexist. And I wouldn't be surprised if Jackie and Richard have got a view on this as well, because... In health, I suspect a similar thing. Um, I mean, a similar relationship. I mean, when, when I was talking about external income generation, it means by actually some um, money being put into the university gives the opportunity to produce even more OERs, which actually then benefit an even wider population. But there has to be some some support to do that, because particularly if you're asking for new OERs, and certainly within my area of practice, which is midwifery, there is very little OERs available. So there is a huge need to develop, but there is a, there is a cost that has to come with that. And I'm sure there might be other subjects that have the same problem. We often um, talk about this concept of the OER cycle, where there are lots of, you know, we make our resources available, and there are lots of organisations, be they charities or parts of the NHS, that see our resources and want to use them. Firstly, they often don't believe that they can have them for free, which is often something we need to get over. And then sometimes there's an issue, because they're free, they wonder actually how reliable are they, so there comes up that quality assurance issue. But what we often find is that they will come and work with us, and, and actually, I think, uh, as Tony was saying, it's, it's, you know, 
it's, it's about the services that we can provide around the resources that are often pay for us to come and run workshops for them, to develop partnerships with them. And we actually end up very often working with them to develop resources. Um, and sometimes they're a little bit reticent about releasing those things for free. They maybe want to keep, you know, maybe we can make a little bit of money out of them. And it's often a bit of a journey, I think, um, to get to that, that kind of complete that cycle. Chris. Um, I've been interested in, in sort of what Ian was saying about searching places where you know, and it sort of tied in, I think, with Anna sort of playing with people who know you know want to play, because it implies that you have some sort of knowledge. I mean, it's one of the interesting things about, and it's maybe about the maturity of open educational resources, and I think it ties in really well with what Richard's just said. Um, people really don't know what they're about. They're still looking for open resources in the familiar places and they're most happy when they find them there and you have to have this sort of long conversation to really equip people we talked about brand and some of the shortcuts but people aren't still used to looking in open repositories like Joram for resources how do you guys think we get over that because as Jonathan said there was a lot about discovery in the first bit maybe people aren't looking in the places where they could find open resources, maybe they don't yet trust them. I don't know. I think it's actually quite hard to find OERs, um, and I think that's something we really need to make easier. Um, we, we did just have some students using Joram, and they one failed completely, and two did quite well. Now. I don't think students will use Joram. What we need is it's this, somebody says, recommends it, somebody says this fits. I think the value is that we're saying, use this, it will help you in that way. So, this, say the skills portal, some resources are used because a librarian simply says, do that tutorial, then come and talk to me. I mean, that works. Students will listen to other students, but I think resource discovery is just a step too far, and it's quite hard to teach others to, to sort of work out search terms and go through Joram, even though Joram's easier now. It's, it's, not, I'm sorry, it's, it's not just about playing with the people you want to play with, or who want to play with you, but it's about playing the same, the game that they know how to play. But it implies that there's some sort of discussion or some prior knowledge to know that. Yeah. And I think, you know, in terms of my own research, you can see reuse happening close to home. Yeah, but they, they have see, to know the it's, game. It's really easy that the, the barriers are low, and, and what mm. Vivian said is, is sort of reinforcing that, sort of, if you like, the, the trusted librarians, the people who provide knowledge, you trust them and, and they help you. But how do we, you know, how do we progress out? Because open educational resources allow completely strange discoveries to happen, and that's maybe the potential, or another potential. I think that, there's, that for, for me, the, the approach that works best is a disciplinary approach because people who are doing very similar things, you know, they will find that a repository that's based on the discipline is much more useful than, say, Joram, where they can find everything and anything, you know. So I think, you know, maybe looking at professional associations as hubs of OER that are related to a profession, for example, which is not something I don't think has been done. Um, but that certainly, you know, the, the more closely aligned that the needs of the users are, the easier it is for those resources to be really useful to them. Thank you. Um, I'm going to draw this to, to a close now. 
Um, school came into being uh, about three years ago at the same time as the UK OER program of the uh, HE Academy and JISC was, was launched. And when those two things happened, there was really very little uh, activity across the, the sector, just little pockets of OER activity, pun intended for those in the know. Um, and we've seen a pretty remarkable change o over those three years um, I think there is very definitely now a community of uh, open educational practitioners across here. And another interesting change has happened. Three years ago, it was all about resources. That's what we were focused on. But almost immediately, our fellows started sort of moving us on from there uh, towards practice. And most of what you've heard today has actually been about practice. Sure, there have been resources involved, open resources, um, but it's uh, all of the uh, work that the fellows have done has been about the practices around those and some of the, the, the challenges and some of the new opportunities that, that emerge from that. Um, so we're now actually in a position, you know, score may be coming to an end, uh, but it, we, the Open Education SIG now exists, um, and this wouldn't have been possible or feasible uh, three years ago. It's, it's been created... Uh, for the community of open education practitioners. Uh, there are 131 members of it so far, and this is rising quite fast. Um, many of you in the room may have seen the Open Education Statement of Commitment, and if not, just visit that web address down the bottom, openeg.org, and you, you, can, you can see it, which is an invitation to make a personal commitment to open education practices. Um, and... Uh, so it's been created as a special interest group of the Association for Learning Technology, and uh, it's, it's really been designed to support and encourage open educational practices and to represent the interests of uh, you, uh, the OE practitioners. Uh, one of the things uh, that we've uh, just been doing is we've been communicating with all the people, all the new members, to find out what they want the uh, new group to do um, and interestingly enough, influencing OE policy both at an institutional level and as a national level is something that, that scored very highly, uh, as does connecting with uh, other OE initiatives worldwide. Um, and I'm very pleased that um, the Open Education SIG uh, is continuing the uh, annual conference uh, tradition uh, of the OER series that, that SCORE has been running for two years now. Uh, but it will run next uh, OER conference in Nottingham, and the call is out very soon. So while this may be the, uh, marking the, the end of SCORE and celebrating the three years of, of what's been achieved, particularly through the efforts of, of those uh, you've heard from this afternoon, uh, it's also the beginning of something which is, if you like, community-owned, uh, that, that is not um, something that, that has been brought into being through external funding, but something that has come out of the commitment and enthusiasm of people who, who work in this area. So with that, I'd like to thank you for uh, joining us this afternoon, and there is a reception next door, so please enjoy the refreshments. <laughs>